Good afternoon from sunny West Oakland, California. This is Human Matter, and I am your host, Jacob Lyles. This is a special episode because it is the first episode of my first ever podcast. So thanks for listening, and thanks for starting out on this journey with me. Now, my intention for this podcast is to explore the topic of what it means to be human in the modern world. That is not an easy question to even formulate exactly what it means, but there's a reason why it's harder than it's ever been before. We are exposed to every culture from every corner of the world, thanks to the internet. And each of those cultures has its own answer for how people ought to behave. At the same time, culture is being created and destroyed and experimented with at a rapid pace that's never been seen before in world history. Now, while this is going on, the question of how we ought to be and what it means to be human, those don't go away. And I find them to be very urgent, confusing, and difficult questions. So this podcast is part of my exploration of that. Uh, Fittingly, the subject of my first episode is existential crisis. It's important to me because I find myself often in the grip of an existential crisis. I find myself reinventing my identity and renegotiating my relationship to the rest of the world. And those kind of processes are what I refer to by existential crisis. My guest for this conversation is Dane Johnson. He's a good friend of mine a very thoughtful and and intelligent individual, and it turns out that he's a great person to have a conversation on this topic with. Now we start with the topic of existential crisis, but from there we jump off into talking about love and the true nature of love, uh, how commerce affects the relationship between people, religion and the quest for meaning, and the interconnectedness of all people. And besides that, we talk about a few other things, but I won't give it all away. Instead, let's just jump into that conversation, and I'll see you on the other side. The topic of the the podcast today is existential crisis, so I wanted to start off by asking you, what does that even mean to you? Yeah, what does existential crisis mean to me? Uh, It makes sense in my mind that when having an existential crisis, you are having an experience. So that's like the baseline understanding is that existential is also an experiential um, occurrence. Happens at some point in life when you begin to ask some big questions revolving around identity, place in the universe, what it means to be human, what it means to, if you believe it, to possess a soul what are the consequences of believing that you have a soul? Um, where does the soul end up when you die? What's the purpose of the soul while you're living on earth? Um, so all of these thoughts and questions swirl around and there's not a, from my experience, there, there's not a, a formulaic answer or a logical conclusion that you can arrive at existential questions and an existential crisis usually leads to more questions and perhaps as Rilke 
um, the writer and poet said, it's it might lead to better questions. And maybe that's the whole point is ask your existential questions, wonder what it means to be human, to be alive. Um, but ultimately, maybe you'll find that those questions aren't as as important as um, the questions that they're replaced with. You kind of move on. So I think existential crises, the feeling, the emotion behind it is that they are not fun. Um, most of the time, they're very discombobulating. They create um, confusion in, in how you relate to others as well as how you relate to the expectations that may have been put on you by society or you may have put on yourself or that parents or religious communities may have put on you. Everything comes into question, so therefore everything sort of is shakily, um, just barely perched on what used to be a foundation of knowing. I think an existential crisis involves not knowing anymore. Yeah, thank you for that answer. Um, maybe I could share with you, I liked what you said about how the questions that you start with transform into new questions as you go along. Um, mm -hmm. and maybe I could share with you, um, my own personal experience with that. Yeah. Love so, to hear it. so I used to worry a lot about, I think, trying to find or to, to prove the right way to live, to think really hard, um, and figure out what's the best way to use my life, um, and that sort of relates to a lot of these questions at like, what is a human life for? Um, what is my life for? And over time, as I've gotten older, I've gotten actually farther from those questions. They seem to have receded in the distance as fewer people are asking me to choose from a, menu, a smorgasbord of choices as to which life I want to lead as maybe choosing a college major uh, does. And in the marketplace, in the adult world, there's sort of less choice forks. So those questions seem a little bit less urgent to me. But I've also noticed that I've sort of transitioned from thinking about the answer to how I ought to use my life to exploring or looking for the answer outside myself. Um, so, so it has become more of an empirical investigation for me. Um, does one activity seem to sol uh, resolve the emotions behind the existential crisis better than another activity? Um, can I find the answers by observing others? And that's been my own path to from one that's more internally focused uh, to one that's more external and perceiving the world around me. Yeah. Um, I'm curious how <laughs> how has that worked? Has have you noticed a shift or a dissipation of the emotions that have that you may point to as a caused by an existential crisis? Do you find them lessening or eased by looking outside of yourself more? At times. At uh -huh. times. So I've discovered that there's certain ex kinds of experience that I can have that push those existential problems away 
and give me mm-hmm. maybe by giving me a sense of belonging and a sense yeah. that my current identity is good enough for exploring the world um, such as anytime I spend more time in nature than I have before like anytime I mm-hmm. increase my 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 level of participation in the natural world I find that that mm-hmm. is um, something that soothes the the worrying voice in the back of my head that I'm not doing life right um, mm. But I'm also curious to hear about your experience, personal experience with yeah. existential crisis and the journey from from the questions you start with to where you end up, if that speaks to you. Yeah. Yeah. I think similarly, I was concerned as you were earlier in life, I was concerned with what living the right kind of life or doing the right thing. And I was raised in a, a religious up, religious household, and my community around me, friends, everybody around me was also religious, Christian, Protestant. And so there was always <laughs> an abundant supply of the right answers, quotes around right. Um, there was always something that I could be striving toward and always something that I could be lessening in other other ways there was there was no place to just exist and there was no place to just be there was always this feeling and i'm not saying that this was put on me by by religion or christianity but this was something maybe a combo of family religion and just my personality that i was not doing enough or i wasn't being right or good or um well enough just wasn't enough so there was always this struggle to keep keep doing which didn't really satisfy or get rid of that like longing or that desire to feel whole um so like when you were talking about um experiencing a sense of belonging when you look outside of yourself i think that's something that was that is still very attractive about religious and faith communities as well as family for that matter. Um, you, you belong somewhere. So you don't have to think anymore about, is it right that I'm here? Is it okay that I'm here? Am I enough here? Because you belong. Of course you're okay here. Of course you're, you're, you're a Christian or you're Muslim, you're Buddhist. Of course you're okay here. Like, hang out with us. Um, there's no longer this pressure to do or be, but I left that community for quite quite some time and I went exploring on my own and I found that it's much harder to be at ease with myself and to know my own worth or my own lovability um, when I was out wandering alone and I also found that introspection and turning to my own thoughts was not helping me at all so I also arrived at a similar conclusion that it has to be about something else like life the right way or the way that makes us feel whole or the way that makes us feel like we belong to something. It has to be about something else. It can't just be about us because if it's just about us, um, it becomes very boring. It also becomes really confining and sterile. Um, and I don't think that's the way that we can best live or best thrive. I didn't give you a very specific answer to your question. Um... I learned quite a bit, though, about 
what it means to be, just simply be without doing. Um, well, about two years ago, when I visited a monastery in New Mexico, and it was an Orthodox Christian monastery. And it was there that I realized just how much I try to understand myself and my place in the universe and God and my utilitarian value to society through my intellect and through my rational thought process. And at the monastery and in orthodoxy, there's so much more of an encouragement to embrace the mystery and embrace everything that you don't know. And if you come up with an answer that sounds really conclusive, you're probably wrong. Because the way that they express understanding God is called the apophatic approach, which is understanding by way of negation. So rather than saying God is really big or God is this high, they say God is higher than the highest heights. So it's like God is bigger than what your brain is fathoming big to be in the first place. So whatever you think you understand about God, it's more than that. It's much bigger. So that actually, rather than feel small and insignificant, that was really empowering to hear because it let me off the hook of trying to figure out rationally like what it means to exist in this universe and what it means to explore the infinite divine. It, it just said that you don't understand it. You, you have to engage in it in an experiential way. It's not something to be deduced down to logic. Once you do that, it's no longer divine. It's no longer mystery. It's no longer infinite. It's something that you fathomed in a very finite brain. So the process continues. I don't know if I, I may still be having existential crises because um, it's hard to stay in that place of unknowing. It's an uncomfortable place to be. But going back to trying to rationalize things that are pretty irrational um, is really, it's really taxing on the brain. <laughs> and it's, uh, and I think it's one of those examples of like, it's beside the point. Like it's one of those things where you're asking questions about the wrong thing. Um, thinking about how to explain God or God's existence or what it means to be human because um, it's such a massive undertaking to answer that question. It could mean a thousand, it probably means a billion different things actually to the billions of different people on this planet. So yeah, it's still an exploration. I, I like what you said about um, trying to use rational means to understand irrational things. Um, do I get from that that you think things like identity or purpose that or a place in the universe that these are somehow fundamentally irrational and that they can't be approached by the intellect well we attach a lot of rational thoughts to them um and then we're affirmed for attaching such rational thoughts by people in society who also hold the same rational thoughts so even rational is something that we've created um but I, so your question is, is identity, um, those, is something like identity a rational uh, creation? Is that what you're asking? Um, I think I was 
asking more of the opposite. Like, is it um, something mm. that is incapable of being grasped by rationality? Something like identity? Yes. Hmm. Like, does the concept of my identity make sense or could it make sense properly understood to who <laughs> to yourself or to to someone else uh either i think it's easier to live on a more of a surface level understanding of identity and if we'd lived there then we could we do make it makes rational sense to other people by calling ourselves like by identifying ourselves as um, fathers or sons or bankers or bakers or Californians, Americans, uh, global citizens. Like we, we find some way to identify um, that projects from ourself some under some like instantaneous understanding for others so they can like understand and categorize us in some schema that their brain has archived away where they put the americans the californians the vegetarians or the vegans there's a there's a slot that we fit into and i don't know if that's uh if that's rational i think it's more that we do it out of convenience which is why people like it is more convenient to think rationally um, but if you go below the surface of identity, then it's it's much more than that. We we aren't just those things, and those things are are not fully us. They might say something about us, a little something. They might say nothing about us, but that's what we choose to identify most with, because we live in that space more often than we live in what the monks would call the deep heart, which is the place where rational existence is not the goal. The goal is to live um, fully aware and fully present and fully accepting of what it means to be alive and and loved. So it's like diff different modes of being. It, it seems like you're saying that these concepts that we often think about in terms of existential crisis or at least identity as one of them has sort of multiple levels we can comprehend it on like it is a social tool that helps us interact with each other but if we stop to think about the totality of its meaning it's it's uh infinitely deep and maybe god or a place in the universe or purpose are like that too um, it's easy to think of a purpose on a, on a surface level that can help you get through a day. Like a to-do list is in a way uh, a set of purposes at its most banal, but uh, but thinking of ultimate purpose is equally as difficult as grasping God. Yeah. Yeah. I think people have those, I mean, they have these guiding values, these ultimate purposes, God, for that matter, or, or a religious narrative to help under, to help, uh, help them navigate the things that pop up in life that are beyond the to-do list type of tasks. 
like when there's greater questions of like not what what am I going to eat for breakfast, but um, what do I tell my kids about how to how to engage in sexual activity or not engage in it depending on your upbringing. So it's like these values are informed by they trickle down from the higher purpose or the greater purpose or um, the greater meaning that you per, um, yeah, prescribe to. Um, but I think that what we focus on mostly, like what gets the most attention and hype is our focus on the more social identity, the things that are more outward facing and that we constantly come up against in society, which is like more based on what you do, um, what you earn, what you give, what you contribute, um, how educated or not educated you are, and then um, where you're from, how old you are, whether you're healthy, what your sexual orientation is, all of these things that are easily, that easily put us in groups. And it goes back to the whole belonging thing. Like, I think it's nice to have a clear under like a clear um, description of oneself. So, and it's really convenient if others do that for us, because then we know if we belong with them or if they belong with us. And if they don't, we at least like, which is, we have this sense that we understand our place and their place in the world. Even if they don't belong to us, we don't belong to them. We kind of have an understanding, like they belong to that group over there because they are this. Like, I might not be vegan, so I don't really hang with the vegans, but it's cool that vegan people have vegan restaurants and other vegan friends to have barbecues with where they make, you know, whatever, tofu or tofurkey or something. So I think that it's really handy that we create these identities, but that there is so much more to what it means to be a human that you you can kind of start scratching the surface at when you belong to a religious or faith community that draws you out beyond even just your lifetime and says what does it even mean to be here as a as a human being to exist like what does it mean to have a soul and that can be really uncomfortable because when faced with those questions you then begin creating narratives Um, you begin telling stories about that could potentially fill in the gaps or like ease the unsettled feeling that that can come about when you realize that maybe we exist beyond our bodies. Maybe there is something after this life. Maybe there's something going on parallel to our own experience that is a more of a more spiritual nature that we can't see, but that impacts us um, and find our way of how we belong in that world as well as belonging in society. So, yeah, there's layers. Yeah, it, it's striking that listening to you, um, thinking that our need for belonging is partially driven by an internal feeling um, given by given uh, the, the mystery of, of being alive, but it's also seems to be driven from like just social needs and like the the comfort of being able to explain ourselves to other individuals and to have them explain themselves to to us in in an easy way um hadn't yeah hadn't thought about that side of the equation 
as much. Yeah. Well, I believe it's evo- it's like an evolutionary um, uh, activity, for lack of a better word, that we need others to survive, even though we push people really far away or ostracize ourselves from certain groups. Um, <laughs> sounds hippy dippy, but like we're we are all connected. We depend on other people for for our food. Um, we depend on, you know, truck drivers that we'll never know to transport items that nourish and keep us alive from other regions of the world where it can actually grow. So there's this interdependence that, that we have that we don't always acknowledge. But if we acknowledged it, um, I think that would strip away a lot of the, the divisive sort of identities or and people group identities that we put up around ourselves and those who we call you know our loved ones or that we feel loved by you strip that away and realize that we're all interdependent we could connect on that level there's still so much social conditioning though that has um caused us to think of ourselves either above or below others and so we don't connect on that level we don't realize that we belong to absolutely not just everyone, but everything. Our our dependence on air and water, and the seasons being favorable to life, the planet not getting knocked out of this this very perfect spin that it's got going on that allows us to stay warm and cool and have seasons. You know, like we're so dependent, but we rarely acknowledge that because we live on the how do I fit in society? How am I presenting? Um, I think, and that's just a Western, more of a Western mindset. Um, very much individual culture, self-made man, like pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps type of mentality um, that we praise over here. We don't praise interdependence. We don't praise dependence. That looks like weakness, but but we are. We're honest. We're being truthful. Yes. So again, it seems like there's sort of two uh, realities here. One in which uh, everything depends on everything else for its existence. Um, and uh, this other level in which to make social life easier, we have divided ourselves into certain groups or in certain ways of belonging. And I don't think that you could say that either of those things were untrue, um, but they each perspective kind of yields its own fruit and its own uh, consequences, depending on which one we adopt. And it's it, it's hard for me to not like I I side with the the view or the perspective that we are all interdependent we need one another we depend on each other and let's recognize that i sway towards wanting that to be prominent in my own life and and that i also want the world to adopt um and then the, i believe that the opposite is dominant right now that it's more um we keep things separate just like at a very basic example how we eat our food like we don't actually see where our food comes from we don't see we, a lot of us don't know what it looks like before it's like chopped up and put on our plate. Um, we don't realize the process that it took to make it. 
although there are many, and especially being in California, there are many more people who are conscious of it and proudly so. Um, but one of my mentors said that even, even something like money, it's this created tool. And she, she would say that money was created to ease our sense of interdependence on each other. Because if I can just pay you with this, this neutral item that you find value in, that I find value in, that as a society we all agree upon equals this amount and is, uh, you know, pays for whatever work or goods that we're given, I don't have to know how you are or what you are or who you are. I give you the money and you go away and you're, you're gone. I don't have to actually love you. I don't actually have to care about you. I don't have to belong to you and you don't have to belong to me. Um, and so even something like, like money has created this kind of distance from each other as well. It's, yeah, uh, I, I think of money as like an interface between people. So we can both talk to money without having to talk to each other. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The whole money talks thing. Um, it's a kind of new meaning to money talks. Yeah. Um, I had a question about uh, earlier you were talking about joining in social groups in order to feel like you had some place you belonged, especially with regards to religion. And I, that that's interesting to me because most of my peers nowadays, we, we don't have religion. Uh, relig religiosity has been declining around the world um, in recent decades. And um, in California, we're sort of at the forefront of that where most of my friends don't go to any sort of regular religious service or have any sort of regular religious practice. Um, so I'm kind of curious to know, like, has that strategy or any of the other strategies for belonging or finding meaning, um, have they worked for you? Like, do they have any sort of permanent satisfaction to them? Hmm. That's a good question. Okay, so on the one hand, I'm thinking about what you're saying, that we are um, a culture that is pretty quickly moving away from from a religious and traditionally ritualistic type of community. Um, but what I find interesting about that, and I'll answer your second question, but what I find interesting about that is that though we're not going to the more institutionalized versions of religious community, all sorts of community is popping up in what we're creating in companies and in hobbies and in, and in our, again, like our identification mechanisms, which is like, you can think of ridiculous thing. No, I shouldn't say ridiculous. I'm judging, but I've, um, something like soul cycle, which is this great exercise community and it's totally a community. And it, I mean, just use like look for the word community on for-profit companies' branding and slogans. Like everything's about like join your tribe, join your community, get a community of support, like be among many. It's all like it's this you are included here, you belong here. If you join here, you're one of us. And I think that people 
though we're moving away from the more traditional upbringing, we're still hungry. Like there's this human need for that kind of connection and sort of greater purpose understanding. Even something like the counseling program interchange that we're both doing. There's a sense of, I get you a little bit better because we both belong to this thing. And I think that that, we can't escape it, even though we, we escape religion, religious upbringings, we still find it somewhere else. Yeah, I, um, I think you're you're right in, in that, like there's a incredible thirst for community that's being filled in the marketplace. Um, there There is some way in which all of these offerings though, they're they're mediated through the profit motive. And that's one thing that I think religion offers that say um, uh, that these other communities don't is that ultimately if I'm say on Reddit or at a counseling program, um, these things are being run for profit and they're showing me ads. They could be shut down at any moment. I know in the back of my head that the owners are trying to make profit um, from me. And at a church, it's kind of nice that you can walk in without paying money. Although I, I guess to be a member, you do have to pay money. So that might just be my outsider casual perspective. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's that's a tough one because I know a lot of people would could easily just point to some of the most beautiful pieces of architecture in our history all all across the world and to counter your point and say that the the church catholic orthodox um and other religious communities like that they they create they obtain a incredible amount of wealth through its through people's tithes and through their donations or contributions yes um but you're right, it isn't usually it is understood that when giving to a place like that, a, a religious community, that it's the money will be spent in line with the values that have drawn you there. So you're giving to something that you want to see grow. Hopefully that's your understanding. Otherwise, I don't know why one would still give. Um, so there's there's a little bit still of that exchange sort of model that we're giving toward something that we want to see more of. Just like if I go and pay for a yoga class and I keep paying for a yoga class, it's because I want more yoga classes. If I stopped paying but I kept wanting it, it they would cease to be able to offer it. Um, but And that's where I think maybe that's where the difference is in churches. If people stopped contributing their wealth or their you know, their tithes or whatever, and you weren't able to support it like like at a basic infrastructure level or a salary level, there is such a strong s- story, narrative, and spirit within religion that it has the ability to live on, even if people aren't willing to contribute money anymore, or if people don't have anything to contribute. The thing that just like the compelling thing about religion is that people give absolutely everything, even their lives for these communities, because there's that much higher purpose that is transcending just this life. There's this understanding that this life is just a part of an existence beyond this life. So people are willing to give, you know, not just money, but 
their their actual life. And that's um, an expensive product. Yeah, yeah. The the. But it's just seen through a completely different lens in religious communities. And I'll just speak for Christianity. You don't. You see it as a sacrifice that. You you were given this thing like again back to the interdependence on everything that we even our ability to earn a salary is is like a blessing to us like the fact that we have minds that work and health that's intact that enables us to then go and earn money that's something to be grateful for and in showing that gratitude you contribute it back toward a source of like a place or a community that continues to keep you focused in that mindset. It, it seems like uh, gratitude might be the emotion that arises from recognizing interdependence. Hmm. Yeah. Like it seems like that is the emotion for me that I hmm. think is one of the most powerful ways to change how I see the world. Yeah. Gratitude is is becoming such a it's like a safe place, like an an interfaith word that everybody can get behind because it it's not about what you believe or what you think anymore. It actually brings you right into the present moment and provides a sentiment that can be shared with everyone around you. So it's instantly unifying. Gratitude's powerful like that. And I know that's why a lot of a lot of the monks, like both present and throughout history, often will just pray over and over and over. They'll just say, Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And it creates this same sort of surrender and um, praise that any other kind of worship would create. And it also makes you really love everything. It makes you love the earth and the sky for what it gives and people who cross your path, even little little insects. Like you'll if you're just saying thank you all day, you look on everything so with so much more kindness. Um but I I was also when you said that gratitude is sort of like when you recognize interdependence, that gratitude's the feeling that's brought up. And I'm wondering for those that don't feel gratitude, what's the feeling that comes up? This idea of interdependence. Um, and one of my theories is that people hear interdependence and long for more disconnection or more freedom from that interdependence. Like it means that they haven't created a strong enough identity or sustain themselves well enough to be able to be separate. So maybe the opposite would be like a resentment. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I thought it was really cool. Like when you accept this idea that we are all interdependent, gratitude arises. So therefore, if you reject this idea that we are all interdependent, what arises? Yeah, I, I guess interdependence can be threatening. Um, it means that freedom is impossible. It means to to some extent that individuality is impossible and those are two things that are very important to uh, western sense of identity 
Yeah. Absolutely. We are so we are so conditioned to want to be individual, to be separate. Um at least at least on the surface, at least to project that, but ultimately like we keep coming back to being close because even when we exercise our individuality expressively through through clothing or preference of music or you know lifestyle choices we inevitably still clump together with people that choose that same style or or align with the same beliefs um but i was i've been thinking a lot about in the last few days i've been thinking about love because i was uh, asked to write an article about true love for an orthodox community an orthodox christian audience a blog and what i've stumbled upon in one of the definitions of true love is that one of the differences, the way that we can confuse true love with love and is that most of our understanding of love is more of a narcissistic love. It's how, how can I express myself in a way that will also fill something that I need, something that I want. And the way that this this deacon, he's like a, a deacon in the Serbian Orthodox Church said it, and I cannot pronounce his name, so I won't even try. He was saying that true love is is actually to, is ecstatic, which comes from a Greek word, which means to stand outside of oneself. And that to truly love another person is to get out of yourself and be completely with them to realize that you actually belong to that person. Um, and so that's got me thinking of just this idea of interdependence. Interdependence is also a recognition that we don't stand alone and we can't. And then in order to survive and, ex and exist, that we are actually going to have to understand what it's like to, to stand in someone else's shoes as well and support them as they are also supporting us. And it's in the interdependence of, of loving each other in that way that we actually achieve true love. But we've, we've really destroyed that word, love, because we don't get very close to understanding it in that way. It more takes on the, the real romantic and marketable um, definitions in our culture. Because to, to love, to really truly love, and to not see yourself as an individual loving is a hard thing to do. And But to realize that to truly love, you aren't actually seeing yourself as an individual anymore. You're seeing yourself as belonging to another. And they are, they're seeing themselves as belonging to you. I think that's what a, a faith community or a community of any kind can achieve. Is that for the sake of love, for that matter, that being a higher purpose or a higher calling or the ultimate goal or the ultimate reality... You can all aim for that, and in aiming for that, you're able to step more and more outside of your ego identification and your individuality. And as you step further away from that, you start belonging to something much bigger than just your ego identification and your individuality. And you find that the expression of love is only fully experienced in communion with others and also, possibly, with a divine reality that you come to know through the surrendering process of letting go of self.
this um this this spectrum of individual individuality versus interconnectedness also reminds me of another sort of um, polar opposite, which would be scarcity versus abundance. Hmm. And, yeah. And I think the individual mindset uh, has a lot of scarcity in it, wondering how do I compete with others to get what I need, um, where, whereas this interconnectedness, um, getting outside of oneself, one realizes the abundance that is available to each person as a conscious being. Yeah. Wow. That would shift the way we do commerce. Um, oh yeah, our whole society is set up to function in this scarcity mindset. You know, buy up all the resources, snatch up all the land, put your put your earnings in your bank account, you know, keep it to yourself. Um, what's that phrase? Dog eat dog? Yeah, it's, it's just like that's what we're conditioned for that. And in many ways, but I feel like economics a... is the is the modeling of how people behave under conditions of scarcity. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's, I mean, I think we're early in it, but with our generation that this is changing a little bit. Um, I mean, this is obviously technology made a lot of awesome things possible that were not possible generations ago, but the, even this idea of crowdfunding um, and all of the different, you know, GoFundMe or all of the different um, uh, fundraising tools that have been created in the last 10 years that enables people to see that there is abundance in the world. There's this feeling that you get, like I've, I've done a couple Kickstarter campaigns, but there's this feeling that you get where when you're trying to decide how much money you're going to set your goal for, you realize that it's going online, which is, in other words, the world potentially has access to click a button and donate to your campaign. So there's this feeling like I should set it for a million dollars because who knows? Like, of course, there's a million dollars in the world. It could happen. It's not impossible. You start to, like, think bigger and dream bigger. And, of course, like, you also want to reach your goal, so you, you scale it back and put it to something like think about, all right, who in my network is actually going to go to this page and click on it? So you, you do scale it back and kind of live in a more reasonable world. But even that concept, the belief that you could create something that could be so much bigger than what you would be able to accomplish just on your own. And that that's not just like this far-fetched, like, oh, if only we could get everybody to give a dollar. It's like, you can now. There's no longer that excuse that you have to do it all on your own. The community is there, and they're organizing, and they're popping up all over the place in, in all sectors of society. Not The religious ones are there, and they're carrying on. But, I mean, in in the tech world, in the education sphere... Um, in social good enterprises, people are joining together and realizing that they, they're much more powerful when they do things as a team, as a community. Um, and they don't have any reason to say that they can't connect anymore because we can connect anytime, anywhere, as long as we have Wi-Fi. 
Yeah, so I, I love this train of thought, uh, but I want to make sure that I sort of wrap this up on the same top, make sure we get back to our topic of interest. Yeah, just, uh-huh. so for, for me, a, a lot of these thoughts that we've talked about today, they make me feel better about my place in the world for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. So I was just wanted to ask you if you experienced that as well. Like what's the degree of lasting change or um, do, do any of these approaches to thinking about ourselves and our place in the world give you that sense of belonging or satisfaction or being enough and to what extent do they do that and to what extent do they melt away yeah well you you totally brought it back to the question that i didn't answer which was like the second part of your question of so now i'm a part of this this faith community just this last summer i uh, converted to orthodox christianity after having bounced around and not really committing to a faith community at all for a few years after having been raised in one for most of my life. So to answer your question, like there is this built in sense of belonging that now exists within me um, as a member of the Orthodox Christian church. It's some, it's a church that has been around for thousands of years and is all over the world and there's a reverence for and a belief that people who die in the church are still alive even though their physical bodies aren't there their souls live on because there's this a literal belief that when christ rose from the dead that he also took the power of death away so that we can have life eternal life so there is no death for those who are in christ so that belief has rather than just remaining this concept of like oh that's nice it actually plays into the way that the community operates where we talk to people who are who are dead we have patron saints um who still are alive and interacting and engaging with the faith community from wherever they are in the universe um which is a hard thing to grasp rationally and you don't um, it's something that you surrender to the belief of and belonging to a community that has you know been been going for thousands of years as well as across the world there is that sense of there's a greater sense of like this isn't just me like this is this is me and all of those saints who are still alive but have passed or have reposed, as they would say. And they are there to help me. They are there to guide me, both the living and the reposed community is there to support me on this journey of life. And so I'm never alone. And if I'm alone, that's that's an attack. Like that's a that's an illusion because whether I'm in person with someone else or alone physically i'm not alone there's this spiritual existence and there's a spiritual identity that i connect with so that has helped my sense of belonging the way that that 
has also been difficult though is that to belong to a community that publicly facing claims very specific opinions or, or projects very specific values about how to conduct one's life, a lot of those things butt up directly with what is popular in culture and society. And so there's, there's a choice, there's constantly choices that have to be made to belong to the faith community. And, and in belonging to the faith community, I may not belong as well in society or the popular culture community that is like, you know, within hands reach of me all the time. Um, so there's, that's the friction. I can't explain it. I can't explain my faith community to everybody to have them understand why I belong to it. Um, it's much easier to connect on. Did you watch the football game on Sunday? But that's not, that's not everything. You know, that's just a way that we can, find that we live in the same place in the same time and maybe like something similar but um greater things like well sexual orientation belief in where you go after you die what it means to to live how you should spend your time here and now those are all questions that uh that come up for me personally and also are impacted directly by my choosing to belong to a faith community so I think there's there's a couple of reasons why um, I don't think I would be sold on a similar co course to ease my sort of existential angst. Uh, one is this idea that I, I have this idea that if I belong to a community on, say, Sunday or maybe two days a week, um, that that would ease my feeling of I, I doubt that that would ease my feeling of not belonging the rest of the week um and, and then i also uh i hear about communities existing for thousands of years but the modern era seems like it is a just this powerful dissolving force that can um that can get rid of things that used to exist for thousands of years. It seems like now is the time of change where everything that has stood up till now uh, will be washed away. And I, I don't have a lot of faith that Orthodox Christianity will be around a hundred years from now, even if it has been around for um, maybe close to 2000 years or 2000 years in the past. And then lastly, I don't know maybe these are big things to tackle separately but the, the last one would be I, I don't know what it what it is or I, I find myself with a lot of resistance to, to choosing faith in uh in one in, in one uh in one area of faith versus another um it seems like faith is a choice and so therefore must be arbitrary and um I, I suppose I'm just so modern that the idea of faith seems a little alien to me. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm wondering what your understanding of faith is. Cause I was finding myself thinking like, when you say faith, what does that actually mean? And I was giving definitions that you might not hold. One being surrender to this idea that there is um, 
there is there is purpose existence outside of self. It requires faith to believe that. Um, otherwise, you would just stay in self. And that can be, it doesn't mean like faith in God. It can just mean faith that there's something better or more satisfying outside of just living for self to live for. But I, I suppose that for me, uh, the idea of faith has to do with uh, what we've called mystery, which I might also call metaphysical questions. There's certain kinds of questions that just we can't prove using the tools of logic and observation, which we, which are the Western world's fav- favorite ways of proving things. And, but they're still really important to us. And those questions have traditionally been the, the realm of, in the West, of metaphysics, which is, which is, are things that can't be known through, through physics or logic, like the purpose of, uh, an individual's purpose in life. Like that is, um, a question of metaphysics. Also what lies outside the universe? Does that ha- even make sense? Um, like there's a lot of these kinds of questions and faith to me is choosing an answer to these questions. Um, perhaps acknowledging that other people can't follow your line of deduction to get there because you didn't follow one, but for whatever reason, uh, it seems like faith would be yeah, choosing, choosing an answer to an unanswerable question. Yeah, that's a really, I'm glad I asked because I realize I don't, I don't think of faith that way. Um, and then you could totally, I could understand if you would say, well, of course you do. Cause you chose a faith system. Like within Christianity, I mean, we read at liturgy every Sunday, we read a creed that explains what we believe, the, the constructs of our faith. Um, but I see faith as something much more, uh, such so much more living. Like it's not a, it's not an answer actually. If it becomes an answer, then it's become something that exists only in your psych, in your psyche, only exists like in the logical realm, and then it ceases to be mysterious, and it ceases to be all of the eternal qualities that it promises its its followers or its believers. Um, so the way that I see faith is, is actually a spirit. Like having faith involves embracing a spirit that guides you through this life and through this existence. Um, and so the faith or the spirit of Christianity is humility, love, sacrifice, um, generosity and gratitude. Um, and they're so demonstrated just looking no further than Christ's life. That's where we Christians try to follow in the steps of Christ by taking on his spirit. And so the spirit and how it engages with all of the different times in history and, and cultures, the spirit will engage it as the spirit engages it. It remains mysterious. Um, there can't be set answers for this is happening in society now. Therefore, this is the answer to it based on my faith system. If it becomes that simplified, 
then it's become too logical and too cerebral and it's not living anymore and it has no ability to actually transcend the self or the psyche or the individual. So the way that I view faith is actually driven by um, being, this sounds really crazy. I, I was just about to say being possessed by, and but it actually is. It's like it's being possessed by a spirit that belongs to an age outside of just this present one, but exists within this one as well. Cool. Well, I yeah. like that definition better than my own as, as, or at least it's more appealing to me than, yeah. than the definition I had. Um, our time is quite lengthy now, so I think uh-huh. perhaps we should just um, call it here, but I want to give you uh, just a few minutes to just give me any last thoughts you have uh, about existential crisis. Yeah. They suck. <laughs> um, they can. They can be really difficult. And I... I find myself... I find myself going in and out of them constantly. Even belonging to a faith community, uh, I question the... I question the answers. So I'll ask a question, get an answer, and then I'll question the answer. So I don't ever sit fully at ease with even what my faith community tells me or what they all um, communally prescribe to, which makes my life and my existence really difficult and shaky. And I, and I think that there's, some, there's probably some pride and there's some narcissism in there that causes me to go there. But, I, there, but on the positive side, there's also just a lot of curiosity and... I love exploring. And so even within this faith system, I'm curious about how others see the world, how others find meaning in their lives and how they navigate their own existential crises. Because like we were talking about at the very beginning about feeling this pressure, this need to know what's right or to have the right answer. um, I no longer feel that pressure, but if you don't, have somebody saying this is right or this is wrong or this is true this is false then you have to find a new gauge by which to measure your experience and the metaphysical gauges are not easy to to read um so there's not like a quantifiable way of saying i exist here now in this way or i believe this now because of this it's like existing is um is beyond science um when we get into the greater questions of purpose and and self and and spiritual so my existential crisis continues but i love it i think it's what it means like my my meaning is to keep searching for meaning so yeah i think that's that's probably my last words i think that's a great place to end uh, thanks, Dane, for recording this with me. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, <laughs> I ramble a lot, so I uh, I hope that some some bit of it will be I don't know. Actually, I, however it lands is how it lands. But I do hope that people 
like keep exploring, like feel encouraged to, to wonder more and not to like conclude more. Like it's not about just sitting still and having it like a confident feeling that you figured something out. Like that's not very exciting. It's not very invigorating. So I hope that this just stirs up a lot of, a lot of people's stuff and makes them ask better questions and live a little bit more. Welcome back. This is Jacob again, and thank you for listening to our conversation. Uh, it puts me in a good mood to go back and listen to that audio. I had a great time recording that with Dane. I hope you find it useful, and I hope it inspires you to go looking for some better questions to ask in your life. Now, that was the logical place for the conversation to end, but we stayed on the phone for a little bit longer and recorded some audio that I find to be also very useful and interesting. So we, so I went ahead and included that as a coda on the end of this episode, but it is completely optional. So keep listening if you want to get that. And otherwise, I will see you again when we launch our second episode. Peace. But I, l I like the idea of exploring and uh, sitting with a mystery. I think that uh -huh. th those are ideas that appeal to me just because I, I don't believe you can find lasting, satisfying, static answers um, in an yeah. evolving world. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the fascinating things about the Christian idea of God, too, is that God is unchanging. When you think about how much culture and even the earth changes but that God remains this same unchanging thing. But that doesn't really help anything because God is also mystery. So if he did change or it changed, you wouldn't actually know it anyways because you could just say, oh, that actually wasn't God changing. That was your uh, exposure to the mystery of God becoming more enhanced. So it's funny. There are no static answers even in Christianity. And if they come across too static, then it's probably coming across from somebody who's too psychological and not, not as spiritual. Yeah. Also, a lot of what you were talking about today reminds me of my reading in Taoism that I've been reading in lately. Um, huh. the, the Tao that can be spoken is not the true Tao, is the yeah. opening verse of the Tao Te Ching. So the author Lauza is sort of admitting that this whole book is in some ways hip hypocritical because he can't explain to you uh, the mystery of uh, absolute reality. He can only sort of talk around it in a poetic way to tell you yeah. what it is not. And yeah, that uh, that's a, a big part of, of Taoism. It's interesting to see that in Christianity where, I think that level of thinking is not present in a lot of Christian traditions that are in the mainstream today. Yeah, agreed. And it actually makes me think you're talking about how like better, better understood these things through poetry is that uh, my patron saint actually within Orthodox Christianity is um, a man that lived, died in the early 90s. Um, he was a monk on an island in Greece. His name is Porphyrios. And he's famous for saying, which is one of the reasons why I love him so much, is that he's famous for saying, to become a Christian, one must first become a poet. 
And the idea is that the Christian must be refined and sensitive, um, like open and available to the infinity of God and divine reality. Um, and, and then follow that up with, I was speaking with a professor at Northwestern. He's actually like an econo- economics professor, business professor, but um, he had a really interesting take on on religion and spirituality because I told him I was trying to figure out, like decipher the difference between the two. And he said that religion is prose and spirituality is poetry. So it's like the difference between the technical explanation of a dance and just dancing. And I love that explanation because if you take spirituality out of religion, it's, it's this dead ritual. But if you take the religion out of spirituality, it can be chaotic so they do belong to each other, but but should always be present in equal parts, or in some mix. I think I yeah, or in some mix. I find chaos appealing, so uh huh. Maybe more spirituality, less religion. Mhm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for talking to me. Uh, I am going to let you go and move on to other things myself. Um, I'll follow up with instructions to upload your side of the audio. I think I'll just uh, create a public Dropbox folder that you can upload it to. Perfect. And just be sure to uh, save that audio and don't discard it. Will do. All right, thanks, thanks, Dane. All right, yeah, my pleasure. I'll talk to you soon.